Add Passion and Stir is the podcast from Share Our Strength. I'm Billy Shore. The Share Our Strength community believes that everyone can share in the global fight against hunger and poverty, and that in these shared strengths lie sustainable solutions. Today, Share Our Strength focuses these strengths on making no kid hungry a reality in America. Welcome to Add Passion and Stir. Here with my sister and co-founder of Share Strength, Debbie Shore. And we've got two guests from Arkansas for the first time ever on this podcast. Um, What a coincidence, but not a coincidence because they're both working in ways that are related to each other. Uh, One is Matt Bell, uh, who's got a fabulous restaurant called South on Main in Little Rock. Uh, Matt is currently on his vacation, and he's driving through Denver, and he stopped at a studio to have this conversation with us. Matt, thanks for being there. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, I'm I'm really honored to be on the show. How's your trip so far? Uh, it's It's been incredible. Went to see uh, family up in Montana and uh, decided to drive and take our dogs and make a little trip of it. Because your roots are Montana, then Texas, then Little Rock? You got it. Yes, sir. Yep. Good. Well, thank you for doing this. And um, so here with Pierre Ferrari, the CEO and president of Heifer International, which is an organization that focuses on poverty around the world and here in the United States, uh, mostly by uh, reforming the value chain for those who are producing our food. Mm-hmm. And Share Our Strength, Deb, I think used to be a relatively small funder, but a consistent funder in our early days when we, we were, were more about grant making and had a larger international focus than we do now. We were. I think we, we looked at, you know, like five or ten of the best organizations that were working globally, and, and Heifer was one of them. So Yeah, well, we actually, we've got it. Billy's picture up in the uh, uh, in the village. Where's uh, my picture? Well, I've got to check that out. <laughs> but we have his picture up there as, uh, as one of the Heifer heroes, just yeah, so we well, know. That's, what, that's, what I that's got so for, great. For visiting the ranch, that's which, good. Was, right. which is yep. a pretty cool thing to see. Um, so anyhow, let's start. You're both... Uh, Pierre, you're, you're splitting your time between Little Rock and Atlanta, but um, well, Pepper International is headquartered in Arkansas. It, Little Rock, Arkansas, yeah. I actually yeah. split my time between Seat 7B and Seat 7A. Yes, oh, I know that feeling. <laughs> um, and tell us how you got to Heifer. Um, you, you got a pretty interesting story. Yeah, I, I, um, I immigrated from England 40-odd-plus uh, years ago, and uh, I ended up uh, working in the corporate world, and then I left that in about 20 years ago. And then I started working in... Uh, mostly developing small businesses in distressed communities uh, using sort of venture capital tools uh, to try and build businesses for both employment and wealth creation. Um, so I did that for quite a while. But you skipped over the corporate world pretty oh, quickly. Yeah, so yeah, you, tell, yeah. tell us a little more because I'm sure it, it was formative in terms of what oh, you're doing Oh, very now. formative. At least yeah, I'm guessing yeah, it was. So my first job out of uh, business school was the Coca-Cola company. Uh, I worked there both in finance and marketing. Um, then I did I did some work in the wine business and the juice business, a couple of other businesses. How many years did Coke? Uh, in total, about 20 years. So oh. a long career. Um, I left Coke uh, in '94 uh, as a senior VP of marketing for North America. So a lot of marketing experience. Uh, learned a lot there. You know, you can question the product and everything else, and it is being questioned today. But the fundamentals of business are. It's a really well-organized, very sophisticated machine, and uh, I learned a lot. And I'm trying to apply some of those lessons to the nonprofit yeah. world. So. And when you when you were there, yeah. was there a pull starting for you in terms of like shifting over to the nonprofit world and working on a whole variety yeah. of social issues, or did the 
just one day a switch go off, or was it gradual or sudden? Yeah, How did that work? no, it was. Uh, I started off actually uh, coming out of uh, coming out of business school, wanting to join the World Bank, and that didn't work out for a variety of reasons. So. Um, I ended up just at the Coca-Cola company. I had worked there before before business school, so I had some good friends there, and so they pulled me in, and, and that's what happened. And then while I was there, I constantly looked for opportunities to either volunteer or get engaged with world, uh, global development. I was born in Africa, so I had... Uh, uh, and so Where, my where in Africa? <laughs> in the Congo. Congo. Yeah, in the Congo. So I have a, you know, uh, my my parents were born there, my grandparents were born there, so we have a long history. They were all born in Congo? All, bo- all born in this okay. area, the Katanga, the Congo. It's the farthest south, southern province, uh, right next, you know, if, if you look at the Congo, uh, there's a little, little tail to it at the bottom of it, that's Katanga. And it's known as the Copper Belt of Africa. My great-grandfather, instead of going to Ellis Island, ended up going to Katanga. Uh, <laughs> so that, that was the only difference, really, with just immigrants uh, from, you know, which today is kind of a relevant issue. But, uh, yeah, they just escaped Italy at the time. And um, so we, we ended up in this little mining town. And actually, they were, he was a chef, Matt. He was actually, uh, he, <laughs> he, got, he got trained um, by the, on the P&O line that the, uh, a shipping line between Southampton and New York, and he was a chef. This was your grandfather? This is my great-grandfather. Your great-grandfather. Uh-huh. Bruno Ferrari probably was just a cook, but that's just the same, you know. It's a uh, great well, chef name, though. <laughs> it is a great chef name. Yeah. So well, let's pause there just for a second, Matt. Tell us how you got to be a chef. Uh, you know, uh, we covered it briefly, but I was uh, born in Missoula, Montana. Uh, lived, Grew up just south of there in a small town of about 2,800 people in Stevensville, and... Uh, was a music education major at the University of Montana, and I decided to take a semester off, and uh, I was uh, apprenticing to blow glass with a, a good friend of mine and um, needed to, to make some real money. <laughs> so I, I took a job uh, dishwashing at a, at a place called The Shack in Missoula and uh, realized that I just hated that it was it was terrible so kind of uh, uh fudged my experience to to get up on the floor and uh started uh bussing and waiting tables there and i was there uh, almost seven years in total uh as a as a waiter and a manager and uh when i wet, met when i met my wife she uh she basically said you're such a great cook you love cooking why aren't, why aren't you doing it and I gave her a, a list of uh, 15 cities that had culinary schools that I was interested in, and six months later, we ended up in Austin, Texas. And why, do, why do our wives always really know us start. so much better than we know ourselves? Yeah. Wives uh, are great they at that, do. aren't they? Uh, they do. You know, wives, families, sisters, you know, they, they are usually there to give us the push we need. So. I, I just yeah. I find it so incredible how many chefs we talk to who did not start out with a desire to cook mm. who just sort of you know by some you know twist or turn in their life ended up there and it just kind of makes me think about that's very inspiring to me because i feel mm. like so many other people could you know y- you think of great chefs as people who started out you know just loving it and going to school and planning that in their whole life but in in reality so many people can you know if they have the innate talent they just don't know it yeah and you know i think that i think that speaks to to people finding kind of who who and what what they were meant to do you know mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think you and and Billy started out thinking 
we're going to run this great nonprofit one day. You know, I don't, I don't think that's always the, the plan coming out. So. I definitely didn't think yeah. I'd be working next to my brother for 30 years. That's no, true. That's for sure. <laughs> or even longer. <laughs> or it could be longer yeah. if they let us. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Matt, how did you end up with South on Main? Uh, you know, we I was working at the Capitol Hotel in Little Rock, which I'm sure Pierre is f- oh, familiar with. It's I am. a beautiful, beautiful hotel. Yeah. And uh, the Stevens Corporation had just um, renovated and reopened it in, I believe, 2006. And uh, I'd heard about it, and people were talking pretty highly of it. And I was uh, helping uh, some other restaurateurs open a place and uh, heard about you know, I should, uh, you should go eat at the hotel. And I ate there and, uh, turned in a resume that night at, at, um, midnight online, actually. Well, the food must've been good and, or, or, yeah. or not good enough. And it needed you. Yeah. Well, it was, <laughs> it was incredible that the chef that was running the Ashley's at the time is Cassidy Dabney, who's now at Blackberry farm and, uh, has participated yes. in a no kid hungry yes. dinner in little rock. And the other chef I worked for was Matt McClure, who is at 21C in Bentonville, who is now hosting his own uh, No Kid Hungry dinner. So pretty, pretty cool. Love the way and, that works. Uh, yeah. 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 That's recruitment. Uh, um, and uh, while I was working at the hotel, I was there uh, almost five years. And kind of at the end, I thought, oh, you know, it's time to kind of explore something different, see where I can go. And this opportunity with Oxford American came along mm-hmm. to uh, open a restaurant and I kind of naively thought that I'd be working for Oxford American, and <laughs> after a few meetings, quickly. This is Oxford American, the the like the magazine, literary magazine, literary yes, magazine, sir. which I know, yeah. yeah. And okay, yeah. got it. We call it in. Uh, we have an intellectual partnership with Oxford American Magazine. So, uh, Oxford's headquarters is uh, right next door, and they wanted a venue to um, take the page to the stage. So. Uh, you know, L- Little Rock has this unique, uh, unique reach out of out of a small town. Um, you know, with with companies like Oxford American and 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 Dillard's based there, and the Stevens Corporation, and of course um, Heifer. You know, it it I think gives us a voice of of who we are. You know, being able to reach outside of Little Rock, and that's really kind of what has has driven me with with my involvement with with No Kid Hungry and Share Our Strength is just, you know, reaching uh, into our community, but then also outside of it. Mm-hmm. And where, and where, Matt, where did that start for you in terms, and uh, in other words, how did you go from being a very successful and accomplished chef and restaurateur to also being as deeply involved in the community as, as you are now? Well, I, you know, I actually really love to tell this story and, and have told it to, to some people at, at um, Share Our Strength. You know, grow, growing up in Montana, it's it's a it's a very rural struggle. You know, um, not unlike Arkansas, there's maybe five large city centers in a state that is fourth, I guess, fourth largest in the country. And you know, you grow up with uh, a real sense of of people's needs. And and you know, growing up, we had a kid in my class, Daniel, and. You know, he was the one that seldom had a lunch when we'd go on field trips and, you know, never quite had snow boots. And, uh, you know, uh, this this was in first grade. And my mom would, uh, you know, we, di- we didn't have a lot, but, but we were, you know, we, we had food on the table. And so my mom would often, uh, with a, a group of other, other moms, would kind of take turns packing an extra lunch. And the, the real, the, the, 
the thing that they they said was you know make make sure you give this to Daniel before you guys get to class mm. so there's no you know there's mm. no kind of embarrassment, embarrassment. or no yeah. no stigma with that and and that's something we we are constantly looking mm. at with you know breakfast in the classroom and stuff mm. is is this stigma and you know that was that was really uh, kind of influential in in me wanting to give back and well, you've made a big, big difference for us, Matt. And just before we go any further, I just want to say thanks on behalf of Debbie and me and the entire team at Chair of Strength. You've really been a stalwart in our in our work. And um, understanding now the kind of the set of formative experiences that went into that um, really explains, I think, why you're so uh, authentic and effective on our behalf when you communicate. Uh, Pierre, you, you must have... Uh, Although you were very young at the time, you must have grown up seeing some level of, in a different way, of need and poverty as well, certainly in, in Africa. Oh, yeah, very deep. Um, in fact, um, I was just listening to Matt and, and uh, kids go hungry. You know, my, my grandmother and my grandfather, my, fa- my grandfather was also a chef. Uh, and my father was a great cook. And maybe there's sort of a decline in ability as time goes on <laughs> in generational. <laughs> I'm sort of an average cook. But um, he uh, he and she, my grandmother and grandfather, actually linked up with uh, the local uh, diocese and worked with the Catholic Church to um, help the local villages, the missions, to actually grow the vegetables that were then assembled by my grandmother in a wholesale and retail vegetable business. Uh, and this this kind of link prosperity, if you like, this 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 uh, value chain from vegetable from farm, literally village farm, all the way to um, you know the restaurants in Elizabethville, which is the name of the town that we lived, uh, actually allowed for a lot of those kids to get educated and fed right. properly, et cetera. So, yeah, so I saw it very, and, and I remember being on the trucks actually, going to collect the vegetables and and changing people's lives with uh, uh, with good economic activity. But I, I, I was listening to Matt, and I thought, you know, Matt, you and I need to, to uh, collaborate and uh, maybe put together an event either in your restaurant or at the Heifer Village, uh, combining, you know, your skills with, you know, all the food that uh, the co-ops, the grassroots co-op, and, um, you know, that, that you know about, that you're actually a buyer, and uh, doing, doing some really good event. Um, with uh, the Heifer Village, we have a, you know, we have an urban farm there, and Let's yes, just, I'm a, yeah. I, I buy quite a bit from, a, yeah, one of my really good friends was with Dunbar Garden, uh, yeah. Chris, who is now yeah, over sure. with, uh, yeah, yeah, really, he's, he's a great farmer. Really fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Great so, farmer. And the space you guys have is, yeah. is really incredible. So let's talk about what Heifer International is, because we've referred to it, but it's yeah. a real powerhouse of an organization now um, yeah. operating all over the globe. Tell us. Yeah, it's uh, it's an organization whose mission is to end poverty and hunger, uh, mostly with the least, of, you know, the poorest among the poor. So we work mostly. We work in Arkansas. We have uh, about uh, 12 acres of land there. We've got the building, which is, I said, a lead platinum building, and then behind that we have about four, no, eight acres of land, three of which have now been converted to an urban farm. Then in Arkansas, about an hour away from Little Rock, we have the Heifer Ranch, which is 1,200 acres. Most of it is sort of grassland, it's pasture land, but we are slowly but surely converting it to a production um, uh, operation to support grassroots and a whole bunch of other activities, especially training farmers so that they can go back to their own land or help them find land to uh, to find a living income, uh, growing food, growing mostly uh, livestock. And then we have the Heifer Farm in Massachusetts, in Rutland, Massachusetts, which is about, uh, I think it's 28 acres, where there is a small operation. We grow food there, et cetera. We have a whole program. We're building two 
two cooperatives, one a, a livestock cooperative and the other one a vegetable fruit cooperative, to set up a structure, an infrastructure, so that poor farmers with the right kind of teaching, the right kind of training, can then join an infrastructure that actually allows them to grow the right kind of food and also access markets. Uh, otherwise, the system is just uh, extremely biased against uh, minority farmers or very poor farmers. So we're doing that. And Matt is a buyer, which is really helpful. So thank you, Matt, for that. Oops. Yeah, Heifer, Heifer helped found um, Grassroots Cooperative, yeah. which is my main source for chicken and pork at yeah. the restaurant. You know, and uh, just as an aside, um, you know, we're growing a whole bunch of different kinds of chicken at the Heifer Urban Farm. And I was telling, I used to be in the wine business, and uh, one of the things that we ought to do is a blind tasting of chickens, you know? Oh, that's a great but idea. With diff- wine. Of course, of course. <laughs> with well, it's actually chicken <laughs> with the wine. It's never the other way around, you know? So, yeah, but I think, I think you know, I'm being told that uh, these chickens actually do taste and are, have different mouthfeel, right? They, they go organoleptically different. So mm-hmm. I want to do this blind. I don't want to do this with, you know, a Tyson branded chicken and, a, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I want to do it blind. So let's, if you're willing, uh, Matt, let's, let's do it together. And we'll do we'll something. We'll have idea. fun with this and raise some money. You know, I've spent a lot of time. Absolutely. I've spent a lot of time in Mexico. And when I get the chicken there, which is very small and thin, but very, very flavorful. Right. Everything tastes different in all these countries, right? On Absolutely. On the land and the fertilizer and everything that goes into it. So, so. here's a small fact with that that. This sort of describes the work that we do with heifer. We are very committed to village, what he calls village chicken or Creole chicken. They've got all sorts of different names. There is no doubt that the chickens grown in those kind of conditions, not the mass marketing or the mass industrial kind of chickens, have a very different texture and flavor. So, and the consumer in these countries who don't have much money uh, also are able to differentiate. And they pay two to three times the price for the village chicken and the industrial chicken. That then creates hmm. a value chain mm-hmm. that allows for the poor to compete. Mm-hmm. Well, they're not really competing. They've just found a segment, right? They've essentially found a segment of business. It is 10, 15, 20% of the market. That's what we do. We kind of help the farmers to actually grow chickens uh, in a safe, environmentally safe. Uh, we make sure that the animals are well taken care of, that they're inoculated and protected from disease, well-fed, etc. So we don't violate the practices that allow for the chickens to be who they are, but we create conditions so that uh, the animals are well, uh, let's say, well mm-hmm. taken care of, protected from predators, and all sorts of things that happen in these kind of conditions. That's and, what we do. And, and you do it all over the world. You we talked about your work in Arkansas, but yeah. you're in how many countries would you say? Right now we're in 26 countries, yeah. uh, about six in South Amer- Central and South America, nine in Africa, and six in Asia. And I feel like there's kind of two aspects of your work. Um, I guess I would describe it as if you look through one end of the telescope, yep. you see this very, very simple model right. of uh, what I've always understood to be. You give $100 to the Heifer Project, right. you're going to send a cow or right. a goat or some, right. some right. livestock to a yep. family that needs it, and they're going to get everything they can out of that, and then that, yep. that cow's going to have more yep. cows, et cetera. So that's one part of the model, right. but there's also a much And that was more the original, yeah, right? That was the, that was the original kind of model the, at the, the same founding. time. But I think where Billy is going is that you've got a very sophisticated now infrastructure. Now there's a much more sophisticated yeah. infrastructure yeah. Right, 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 around yeah. it that's working on advocacy and right. systems change. Talk yeah, a little bit about both, yeah. I guess. Yeah, so the system, so this, I'm glad you brought up systems change because fundamentally the, the, the 500 million smallholder farmers in the world, which is sort of our segment, we're not going to reach all 500 million, we're reaching two or three million a year. 
is and you're, you're describing them as small smallholder farmers so small it's about farmers. the land that they had okay. uh, it depends on the country in Rwanda smallholder farm it might be one acre half an acre okay. you go to Rajasthan it might be 10 acres depending on kind of land mass and, and density of population but they're smallholders they are poor uh, they don't have resources they generally are uh, poorly educated so they don't have a lot of skills but they're very smart poorly educated but smart and so it doesn't take very much to actually educate them to a place where they will take care of animals, which is, you know, animals are, uh, or livestock is an extraordinary phenomenon, right? They take advantage of, um, I, 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 I don't want to call them a miracle, but it's a biological or a physical biological phenomenon of um, converting sunlight to food, right? It's photosynthesis. You've got that going on. And, of course, the conversion into uh, uh, the feed that maybe humans can't consume. Then you've got the extraordinary thing of ruminant digestion where these folks can actually, or these animals can actually take in material that's simply indigestible to, to humans. And then you've got... what's the term for that? Uh, ruminant. Ruminant. Ruminant digestion. digestion right? Two stomachs that the cows have, got et cetera, it. right? Yep. So and it's basically a bacterial phenomenon. It's like yogurt. <laughs> <laughs> and then the third piece is reproduction. So you combine the three of them, and you have an extraordinarily productive mm. system that allows for it starts with sunlight and ends up with eggs on your table or or, or meat on your you know on on your dish. So those three phenomena is, are the underpinnings of heifer, and we bring those things in a disciplined, organized fashion. Teach the farmers how to take care of all three phenomena. We teach them how to forage, how to grow seed, how to, to actually collect seed and plant for the next year, so that they actually produce the right kind of what we call rations for the animals, so that the animals are healthy throughout their lives. This then allows the animals to be healthy so they can do their ruminant thing really well, goats and cows, etc. So that it's just it's just an extraordinary thing. Every time I go to the field and I I'm travel there all the time to watch this physical, biological, chemical phenomenon take place. So seventy years, right? Seventy seventy five, so yeah. Yeah, I was that that yeah. blew me away. And I you know, we're thirty plus we're what, thirty two years old yeah. at Sheriff's Right. And we've had a couple of... You're, you know, a, lo you're a lot older, but the organization <laughs> is 32 years old. <laughs> Has to Only bring up my age brother can all the say time. Um, but, you know, we've had a couple of... We've had a lot of interesting moments in 32 years. We've had a couple of very pivotal, yeah. very pivotal moments, like the, when we decided to yeah. focus on ending child hunger, yeah. going narrow and uh, deep yeah. on ending yeah. child hunger, yeah. something that Small is, is uh, <laughs> aspirational but achievable, like yeah, big yeah. enough to matter but Small winnable. Win. Can you, in 70, you weren't there for all those years, obviously. Yeah, you know. <laughs> You've only, what, seven or so years, yeah, I think? Yeah, seven, said. exactly. Um, but, you know, can you can you share a little bit about what some of those pivotal yeah. times were? Um, so one one that happened uh, probably around 1995, so that's a relatively recent one, was the discovery uh, of what they call the catalog, which is what you're talking about. You're probably your yeah. personal experience with Heifer. And it was a small um, congregation, I believe in Florida, that started this catalog and essentially selling animals. Because that wasn't the original idea. And somebody very smart at Heifer uh, said, this is a good idea. Uh, let's take it national. And they did. So the, the organization moved from about a $2 million or so annual revenue to you know, well into the $120, $130 million. Because based of the, on catalog. the catalog. Based on the catalog. Based on the catalog. 
We need wow. a catalog, Bill. Yeah, we need, yeah no, <laughs> we no, we don't catalog. want any more competition. <laughs> we need a catalog. <laughs> but it's extraordinary, and a lot of other nonprofits, of course, have copied us, but we've maintained, you know, we're sort of the, the premium brand. You've got that. that great equivalency yeah. in the cat. I mean, yeah. that's the beauty and of you know, it. And it's, it's allowed us to position, and, and a lot of the people who use a catalog do give gifts because I think there's a, there's a relatively substantial segment of, um, of people, of, of, of generous donors who think, you know, everyone around me has too much stuff. And so this is a gift catalog that doesn't mm-hmm. yield more stuff. Mm-hmm. And we find that a lot of older donors actually use it with their grandchildren. They said, mm-hmm. I'm trying to teach my grandchildren yes. the idea of philanthropy and that they have too much stuff. So it's fascinating to watch and understand the motives behind all this. Mostly stuff they don't need. <laughs> right. In any way, shape, or form. You know, it's yeah. extraordinary. Uh, Matt, as, as uh, Pierre was talking, and as particularly was talking about the animals and the kind of this you know miracle of like what you get from them, I was thinking most chefs probably don't have the luxury of spending a lot of time thinking about this, but you might be one of the exceptions in, in terms of you know your background in Montana. Texas, Arkansas. Is that something that chefs in your industry uh, are, you know, kind of intentional and conscious about? I think we're seeing a real, real change. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, Alice Waters and, and restaurants like that, that, you know, have come from the West Coast. That That's always been a thing. And, and I think part of that is a luxury of, of growing season and, and a, you know, a customer base that's really into it. But I, I think the, the smaller markets now, it and and customers think it's a given that the chef is thinking about that mm-hmm. and that the chef is interested in that and you know I grew up uh on a you know the town was about 2600 people I think it might be 2800 people now <laughs> <laughs> um and you know uh, you you went to Joe's Dairy and you got your milk and you went to M&S Meats and and you got your your meat processed but we had kind of a unique situation where uh, the first house we bought was was from a a rancher in Montana, and uh, the house came with a finishing lot, which is where he would mm. uh, have his cows before they would go to slaughter. And he worked out a deal with my parents that um, if he could use the finishing lot, we would get a half a beef whenever we wanted, uh, which was an interesting proposition because I was raised a vegetarian. So <laughs> at the time, my d- my dad thought, you know what? Like, I, I see these cows. I know what they're eating. I know how they're treated. We're in. So uh, about once a month, the, the lot would get full. And then early in the morning, about 5 o'clock in the morning, this truck would rumble down our driveway and, you know, take a couple cows. And it'd go off to the... Uh, M&S meats to be processed and you know a few weeks or a week later we'd get our you know all of this this meat from from the cow and uh, you know I, I think I'm I'm really lucky to grow in up in a circumstance where that that was an understood part of the food chain I think you know a lot of chefs and a lot of people have become so far removed from that um, understanding you know um, you know where where do you, where does your food come from you know what how does it get to your plate and and an understanding of that i think gives us more empathy into uh you know how we how we tackle hunger issues you know uh, worldwide and mm-hmm. and locally you know it's a it i've i've been on both ends of the catalog where um amy's aunt mary and ted have have purchased stuff for the whole family from heifer and then kind of in a in a way to 
kind of, I guess, pay that forward. You know, my wife and I have done the same for, for my family in Montana and California. And the response to it is really interesting because you kind of do it thinking, oh, man, people are going to be like, oh, I didn't get anything, you know. <laughs> and it, it's quite the opposite. They're actually really excited to not get something and to to have something in their name that's out there that they feel like is, is really connected. Because even though my family in California is from Sacramento, they were, they were, uh, it was a, it was a farm, you know, it was a farm town when my parents grew up there. And, you know, so, uh, you know, I think they, getting those gifts from, from Heifer, they kind of took them back 40 years to when they understood how the food chain worked and, and what it did. And, you know, I've 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 luckily never gotten so far removed from it. Uh, continuing to work in restaurants that cared about ingredients, and I think I think Arkansas is is coming a little late uh, as far as um, restaurants go to uh, understanding how their their food works. You know, we mentioned Grassroots Farmers Cooperative, and um, originally they were called Falling Sky Farm, mm-hmm. and it was one farmer, uh, Cody, Cody and Andrea. Yep, Cody and Andrea, and they, I guess right when the restaurant opened, Cody was coming to the restaurant kind of regularly, which is rare because they're a good hour and a half drive from Mm -hmm. Little Rock, and I'm like, man, you're in town a lot. What are you doing? He's like, well, actually, I'm I'm working with Heifer on on how we're going to start a a co-op, and uh, it was really interesting because, you know, maybe the first eight months of the co-op was was tough for everyone because you know i'm used to this chicken that was packed by one family and you know now we're involving multiple families but they they committed to saying that you know our standards at at falling sky farms that's what we're gonna promote and uh, you know pierre might be able to tell you but i think there's nine farms now involved maybe more and uh, they're looking to bring more on as mm-hmm. as they grow and as the market demands it. You know, when I was dealing with just Falling Sky Farms, uh, there were two months every year where I'd have to scramble to find a, a nice organic chicken from my food service provider because I bought them out of chickens, you know. <laughs> and at the Capitol Hotel, Falling Sky Farm grew because the Capitol Hotel demanded it. We would buy oh man we were buying i guess 80 chickens a week from them wow which was which was huge and they really had to grow their production and it you know the 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 cool thing is they reached a point where they needed to find help to continue to grow and uh you know my understanding at the time of heifer was you buy a cow and somebody in some community gets a cow you know Uh, i didn't understand you know kind of this um i guess kind of small business component that they were they were helping with and and you know teaching uh, you know I, I guess i didn't understand that it could happen in arkansas too <laughs> and seeing that was kind of a game changer for my understanding of heifer and yeah. uh you know hopefully a game changer for these nine farmers as well one of the things i love about heifer's model is exactly what you're talking about matt because most people in philanthropy are looking for some way of creating in their mind an equivalency. Like if I give a hundred dollars, what's going to happen? And it's so clear mm. in your case at one level. And then there's also, as we were talking about this kind of systems change aspect to what you do. One of the things I'm curious about Pierre is 
and, and it sounds like a simple question, but I, I, I know that you, you'll know that it's not. Uh, what does success look like for you? Mm. Uh, when does Heifer say, yes, we're, we've accomplished what we wanted to accomplish? It's such an enormous ambition and aspiration. How do you measure success? How do you know if you're on track? What, how would you describe your yeah. goal? I mean, I know it's ending poverty, but... Yeah, yeah. So we try to say ending poverty where we work. Uh, where we, we work. Really, yeah, okay. so that's, that's, uh, that's a fundamental. And one of the ways we measure, a key measure, is to... We've developed this whole idea uh, with, with, with a couple of uh, partners, uh, on, which, is called, which is linked to the living wage idea uh-huh. that's prevailing in the United States. We call it living income. So in every every place where we work, we whether it's a baseline or, or somewhere where we've been working for a while, we calculate what the current living income is for families, and then we also calculate what we, we calculate the, calculate the base income, and then we say what's the living income. And living income is defined. It's quite complex, but we don't have time to to discuss it here in terms of the technicality of it. But fundamentally, allows those farmers to live a life of dignity. So it covers food, shelter, clothing, education, etc. That is so. Yeah. When we have communities on, so their, when you close that gap we between their gap. base income exactly. and that's what it. the living income is, that's 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 that. success. Okay. Uh, and it's not easy. It requires because most of the farmers, most of the commodities we deal with, or are involved in, the systems that exist today, are really well organized to actually exploit, in almost a predatory way, the smallholder farmers and keep them barely sustainable so that all of the value they create is captured by other people. Mm-hmm. So, Pierre, you, you've had the opportunity with Heifer International to actually go to villages and see how they've changed. Give yeah. us a sense of, you know, what you see when you first get there and what it looks like after yeah. Heifer's had their impact. So, you know, the marketing, th- this is a great question and a really important question. So the marketing uh, and the experience people have with Heifer is that the fundamental thing that we do is place an animal. It actually is not true. We do place the animal, but the fundamental change is actually social psychological change. So we come across and we work with communities which could be described as almost clinically depressed. The people are generationally poor, meaning they've, uh, they've you know, maybe six, seven, maybe a hundred generations of poverty in that particular area. And what are some of the conditions that they're so actually living So you're talking about mal- severe malnutrition among the kids, access to very poor quality waters, or very difficult access to water, poor land use or exhausted land situations, no health care, poor education, no access to education, girls are not educated, uh, housing which is decrepit, uh, in many cases with uh, dirt floors, poor roofs, diseases rampant. Uh, in Africa you will find severe cases of malaria, yellow fever, etc. In Asia you'll find other, other types of diseases. So you got conditions that are really um, desperate uh, and they are most of the folks that we come across are now in situations where the despair is so deep that they they either call it karma or this is just the way it is, I'm condemned to this for whatever reason. The work that we do, and we use what we call values-based training, a set of cornerstones that we have, that approach these communities and move them from a level of hopelessness about themselves to a level of hopefulness where they now can begin to start working at finding ways to escape poverty. Without that shift, that psychological shift, nothing we do, no animal, no training will actually catch. Uh, That's just, we know that. Mm -hmm. And so we spend months working with the communities. Essentially, we're using groups, technology, training, uh, conversations, deep, deep conversation, which includes spirituality, by the way, not religion, spirituality, however they see the divine, if they see a divine in their lives. 
and the, but we talk about self-reliance, sharing and caring for each other, a whole range of issues that begin to realize that their lives are actually in their own hands. And without that, uh, nothing will happen. Once that takes, and once the process has begun, and there is a sort of aha moment, and we know when that happens, we, we've got a lot of experience, then we begin to do the technical training. All right, we're ready, we're gonna bring some animals in, you've gotta create shelter for them, we're gonna show you how to grow the forage, et cetera. But just to go back to the secret sauce, the real change that has to happen, it's social psychology. That I've got the power to... I have the internal to, power. To shape It starts my inside. Life. It doesn't start from the outside. Um, and, and when it does take, you'll do you actually see the, you know, it, oh. is, it, is it visible? It's very visible. The changed economy, first yeah. the, the changed, you know, yeah. psycho, psychosocial, uh, and then the changed economy has led to better housing, better health, better then, water. Then you see, once the flow of funds begin to happen in the, in, in the villages, they will generally spend it. 95% of the time, they will spend it on the right things. Mostly we work with women f to make sure that happens. With all due respect to us guys, uh, you know, there's some, there's some poor behavior on the part of guys, especially because the, the, it's, it's much easier for women to understand that they have an inner power. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating process. I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners are going to say, oh, that's bullshit. You know, the men, the men are just as good. They're not. <laughs> At least in our experience, they're not. No so, argument from me. Yeah. <laughs> so the women really actually take all of the training and all of the belief in themselves much more seriously, and they'll, they'll work harder at it. Uh, so the, the change, the physical change, is that we take people. So one of the things we do when we take visitors, uh, be it donors or, or, or institutional donors or, or, partic or any kind of uh, partner, we actually show them what villages look like without before Heifer in intervenes in some way. And then we take them to Heifer Village, uh, and they are just blown away. It's not the cows that blows them away. Right. It's the people. Right. You know, the people are joyous, they're active, they're energetic, they'll complain, you know, they, they take, they've taken charge of their lives. So impact investing, which is the hot topic, right, has been for right. a few years, is a humongously important tool for us. Most impact investors, unfortunately, give dominance to in financial returns. We upend that and we look for social returns with financial returns being much more patient. So, for example, you have a lot of impact investors who basically say, I need my 15, 16% return, just like, um, like a hedge fund, but I also want social return, be it ecological or social. We're saying, no, we want to have, for example, we want to close the gap, the poverty gap, uh, the living income gap, and we think that if you get your capital percent, that would be great. So we're now deploying large amounts of capital to create a value chain. So, Matt, so give I, us an example. Um, we are working with 150,000 women farmers in Nepal around the goat meat value chain. They have been exploited by a trading system which has working capital. So the small coyote traders in coffee, have you surely heard of, but the small equivalent trader in Nepal comes along with a motorbike and he's able to buy the goats from the farmers, which has been difficult to raise, at the lowest possible price with cheating them on weight, et cetera. So we're creating a series of co-ops which now have to be financed because the farmers still live quite poorly and they need the cash now to cover medical expenses, uh, school expenses, whatever. So we're now having to find a way and we're collaborating with banks, including um, 
the European banks, everything else, to provide up to $30 million worth of working capital to the system. So we have 150,000 women farmers organized in self-help groups of 25 each, then collaborating to create co-ops, maybe 12 to 15 self-help groups organized in small co-ops, and themselves organized into unions. So that the the future for for women in in Nepal, because you're talking about 150,000 farmers who are now feeling the dignity of being economically self-reliant, right? And that is going to be uh, an interesting first for many of them and for their families. Interestingly enough, the just completely coincidentally in Nepal, the new constitution has called for 30 percent of the House of Representatives there to be women. Where are these women going to come from? Who's educating them? We're part of that. Um, I could listen to Pierre talk about this all day. I, I really you, could. You'll have your chance when you're back, <laughs> yeah, in, we'll back in Little Rock. Well, yeah. Tell us what's, uh, two things, I guess. What's what's next for each of you? Um, Matt, South on Main, um, anything new that you've got planned? Um, any other restaurant activities in the works? Any cycling what's, events? Any uh, participation <laughs> in our chef cycle event? I was wondering when Debbie'd get around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Pierre has the catalog, and we have chef cycle. It's a yeah. couple yes, million yes, dollar yes. difference, yeah. but we'll get there. Yeah. Pierre's yeah, well, an awful fit-looking guy, too. I think you, you should Pierre know about our chef cycle ride, because yeah, yeah, you would yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, Debbie puts the screws about chef cycle, so I'll uh, I'll, I'll throw my plug in for, you know, the, the only thing I've ever asked for a uh, from Share Our Strength is that I get to do a Montana dinner one day. Oh, oh. boy, would we love that. Well, I and, know. well, and as you know, the governor there is such a big supporter yeah. of ours that oh, that would yeah. be a natural, Matt. Matt, definitely. Yeah, and you guys might have a spokesman that kind of pushes Montana every once in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Jeff, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Jeff Bridges, Bridges, yes, Bridges. of course. Um, anyhow, what's, we'll next, you know, th- what's next for you? Yeah, and, that's... Uh, and how can uh, folks who are listening find you? South on Maine's probably the best place, but... Um, yeah, more. you know, South on Main, I, I don't hide my email address. It's matt at southonmain.com. And, uh, you know, Pierre, you've, if you're in there, there's a really good chance that I'll be there as well. Okay. And, you know, we're we're four years old. We'll be five in August. So that's a, a really big milestone for a restaurant. And, you yeah. know, time to start thinking about some other things. But, um, you know, my work with, with Share Our Strength has been, it's just been so... Um, influential and and you know i've told jenny dirksen and, and emily roth so many times that these are staff you know, colleagues as, of ours yep. yes mm-hmm. for for as much uh for as much as they think i've given to you guys i feel like i've i've gotten so much more back in in just experience with with understanding kind of how to to go beyond just being a restaurateur and actually being an influencer and being a philanthropist in the community that it's um it's been an incredible lesson so i you know i i really think that the next thing that that south on main and and our our company home to table does is is going to be something involved with you know uh basically training people in the kitchen and, and you know obviously running a restaurant but i'd i'd like that to to incorporate some sort of of job training and and maybe promotion and graduation program within that restaurant, whatever that next one happens to be. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's exciting. That's great. Yeah, that's what I'm excited Thank about. You, Matt, that I'm is. sorry you're not with us, but especially because we usually ask the chefs to bring a treat. 
for us to eat here at the <laughs> station. So we got next nothing time. for coffee. <laughs> next time. Um, yeah. Uh, Pierre, what's next for uh, Heifer So uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the sort of food side, I'm looking forward to uh, doing a, a chicken taste test with the Dorkin chickens and all that. So, But on the, on the, on the bigger scale, <laughs> yeah, I'm a foodie. Uh, on the bigger scale, um, we really are trying to mobilize a lot of capital. Uh, and I'm talking about working capital and some uh, physical capital. This I'm going to be in New York this uh, this later this week um, to talk about how to mobilize uh, the kind of capital that's required. We we have done an incredible job, or the staff has done an incredible job mobilizing large numbers of farmers, and now we need to give them resources so they can change their lives themselves, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Themselves, you know, they have to be responsible and self-reliant, and they have to borrow the money and pay it back, and we do all that kind of training, uh, but without access to it, with I mean, r- real access. I mean, being able to go to the bank and, you know, with collateral say, okay, we need now, this co-op needs $150,000 to build, uh, let's say, an abattoir, small chicken abattoir, so they can process the chicken or the goat or whatever it is. Nothing will change. It'll just keep on working. So I see capital as a big future. And there's, of course, trillions of dollars available in the capital markets. There's only a few billions available in the philanthropy market. So we've got to get out of the philanthropy game. Well, one of the things we always talk about <laughs> at Share Our Strength is the need to not just redistribute wealth, but create wealth. Create wealth. It's, it's a different uh, kind of wealth because it goes into the community. We call it community wealth. But unless we find ways to create it, yeah. we're not going to yeah. break this cycle. We call it new value creation. New yeah. value creation. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. And the best way for somebody who's listening to get involved with Heifer, obviously your website, but are there other specific ways that people are inspired by listening to you can uh, make a difference? You know, my, my, again, my, my, my email address is not, not hidden. It's pierre.ferrari at heifer.org. Uh, it's www.heifer, H-E-I-F-E-R.org. You can get online. You've got the catalog. Uh, we have a thousand ways with which you could donate. Yeah, I mean, there's, a way, there's really a way for <laughs> yeah, everybody to everybody. play a role with Heifer Absolutely. one way or another. And if you're in Arkansas, come by and see us. Uh, come look at our ranch. Come look at our villa uh, and your volunteer, if you like. Uh, there's lots of opportunities. We have, well, yeah. Having been to the ranch, wow. I could say it's a great experience. It, and I hope people it? will take you up on it. Yeah. It was really, really special yeah. when I went. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Matt Bell from South on Main in Little Rock, thank you for being with us. Thanks for taking time out on your drive across country. Really special to have you. And uh, you're just a, an amazing friend and champion for our work. Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm been really wanting to do the show, so this was a great opportunity, and thanks to KUVO in Denver for uh, lending us their studio. Yes, thank you, KUVO. Um, And Pierre Ferrari, such an inspirational leader in what you're doing around the globe. It's really a real treat to be able to listen to you. I'm just thrilled to be able to meet you, because uh, I said you're one of the heifer heroes, so here I am. That's great. (laughs) Uh, And Deb Shore. Yeah, Uh, thank you. It was great chat. Share our strength. Okay, we've got a lot of work to do, Deb. We'll put your picture up, too. We've got to get back. I'll come visit. I'll be there. All right, good, Deb. Um, she's my younger sister. A lot of people Thank ask, you. so I will you know, spare you having Nobody to ask. Nobody has to ask. <laughs> she's two years it's young. It's quite obvious. Um, <laughs> it is. Much younger. This, this is Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach, get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. 
Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. <laughs>